Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. So look, guess what? The missing text from Secret Service from January 5th and January 6th, they are still missing. And no, they have not been handed over to the January 6th committee. And now the National Archives wants answers about what they call the quote-unquote potential unauthorized deletion. Now, forget about Trump's closest advisors. Secret Service was omnipresent. Full stop. So those texts written by the agents who would have been by necessity in the rooms where it happened could be the key to the investigation, as the testimony, of course, of them themselves as well giving evidence about the coordination of Trump's plans leading up to and on the day of the riot, about who spoke to the president that day, who also was in the room where things were happening, and what the president might have told them. Maybe communications about what exactly was happening inside of the White House over those nearly 187 minutes, well over three hours, filling in the gaps, gaps between when Donald Trump told his supporters to go to the Capitol And when he tweeted a video to the rioters telling them that he loved them and to go home. Now, we know that's the very focus of Thursday's primetime hearing. And we have someone tonight who knows the people who were in the White House with then-President Trump during those three hours. And he knows them quite well. Trump's former acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, will join me in just a moment. He knows Matthew Pottinger one of Trump's deputy national security advisors who is scheduled to testify on primetime night Thursday. And he is still in contact with some of the people who were in Trump's orbit on that very day. Suffice to say, each one of these moments is very critical. Every single moment of any failure to act. But I want to zone in for a moment on a key one. That's the moment otherwise known as 2.24 p.m., the moment that Trump sent out this tweet. I mean, it's up on your screen, but I don't have to read it to you. I'll let this rioter do it. My kids didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution. That was outside of the Capitol. Well, this was inside. And the reaction from the Oval Office hearing chants of hang Mike Pence? Well, here's Cassidy Hutchinson retelling a conversation about Trump's reaction to it. Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat, he thinks Mike deserves it, he doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. Deserved what exactly? I mean, keep in mind, there were gallows being built outside and chance of hanging the person who was the next in line of succession. Unless you think Trump wasn't aware at all of the violence of the Capitol in that moment as we were all watching it unfold, listen to this. The testimony further establishes that Mr. Meadows quickly informed the president and that he did so before 
the President issued his 2.24 p.m. tweet criticizing Vice President Pence. Mark Meadows as in Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Well, Trump's former Deputy Press Secretary, Sarah Matthews, is also going to testify on Thursday, apparently. And remember, she already testified to this. The situation was already bad. And so it felt like he was pouring gasoline on the fire by tweeting that. And Matthew Pottinger, that former Deputy National Security Advisor, he testified that he resigned because of that tweet. That's where I knew that I was leaving that day uh, once I read that tweet. I'm wondering what other holes Pottinger might be able to fill in now that we won't have access, at least by Thursday, Secret Service text messages. What, what else can you tell us about what was happening in those rooms, in those hallways? Maybe you can speak to Trump's alleged failure to call up the National Guard. I mean, this is from Jonathan Carl's book called Betrayal, where he says Pottinger could see Trump wasn't there. He was still in his private dining room watching television while the Capitol was being ransacked by his supporters. After several minutes, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows rushed by. Pottinger stopped him and asked if it was true that the White House was blocking the deployment of the National Guard. Meadows said the report was false. Quote, I have given very clear instructions to the guard to get the guard over there to control the situation, Meadows told him, and then rushed back in to see Trump. Now, let's be very clear. There's no evidence that we've seen yet that the president actively delayed the guard's deployment. But we do know that according to Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley, it was Pence who issued the order, even though Milley was told to say that it was Trump who gave the version of the code red. And the guard didn't show up until 5.20 p.m., according to the select committee. For those of you trying to keep track of this timeline at home, yeah, that's nearly three hours after that tweet. Pottinger and Matthews, they both resigned on January 6th. So too, by the way, did Mick Mulvaney, Trump's former acting chief of staff, who was at the time special envoy to Northern Ireland. Mick, thank you for joining us tonight. You know, it's interesting because we're on the cusp, frankly, of the January 6th primetime hearing event. We're learning, of course, that one of the witnesses, in fact, two of them, are people you might actually know, or at least the nature of their positions in particular. I'm talking about Matt Pottinger and also Sarah Matthews, both former colleagues of yours. Give us a sense about what roles they would have been playing in the White House to kind of hone in on why their testimony might be so impactful. Yeah, thanks, Laura, for having me. I'd have to guess a little bit because they're, in my mind, they're they're somewhat unusual people. Um, uh, Sarah was a is a makes sense. She's in the communication shop. She's in the press shop, and she would be interacting with the president relatively frequently, especially on a big media day like January sixth. Um, so it makes sense that um, that she would be testifying, or that she may have seen something. The the press shop is right around the corner from the uh, from the Oval Office. The proximity is 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 considerable. So the fact that she might have seen something or heard something directly makes some sense. Matt Pottinger is a different story. I know Matt. Um, Matt was there when I was in the chief of staff's office. Um, the young lady was not. And Matt is a is a deputy national security advisor. He's an Asia China specialist. He's a very unusual sort of witness. When I saw his name pop up, I said to myself, "What? why was Matt even involved in this? Now, it may be that he was filling in for Robert O'Brien on that particular day as the chief deputy. He would do that. So be curious to see what he saw and what 
what his vantage point was, because his office isn't anywhere near the Oval Office. So I'd be curious to see what both of these folks have to say. They're very interesting witnesses, in my mind, for the last hearing and the primetime hearing because of their distance from the president. Obviously, this is a committee that has two very prominent Republicans. I know they're named as rhinos at this point in time, Congresswoman Liz Cheney and, of course, Congressman Adam Kinzinger. But do you perceive this committee as really just a Democratic committee and a partisan one or more of a bipartisan effort to uncover the truth? I don't describe it as partisan or bipartisan. It's it's anti-Trump. It, it just is, regardless of whether or not the people in there are Democrats or Republicans. There's nobody defending the president from the podium. There's nobody defending the president in the interview room. There's nobody defending the president when the uh, when the when the folks give testimony. So that's what I say when I say it's the Democrats. It's I wish very much that Nancy Pelosi had seated the Republicans that Kevin McCarthy had asked for. Um, I think um, in a roundabout sort of way, it would have accomplished more of what Pelosi wanted to accomplish here, which is I think more people would have watched these hearings if Jim Jordan and Andy Biggs were on the committee. And I think those people needed to see some of the testimony about how Trump really lost the election in 2020. But because of the way it shook out uh, with Nancy Pelosi rejecting um, some of Kevin McCarthy's uh, requested Republicans, that it turned off half the country. And I, I think that's unfortunate. I think everybody would have benefited from watching this testimony over the course of the last seven hearings. Jonathan Carl reported that Matthew Pottinger rushed to the outer Oval Office just before about 3 p.m. on January 6th and had an interaction of some kind with Mark Meadows, asking him about the National Guard in particular. And he drafted his resignation after that interaction and also seeing Trump's tweet about Mike Pence and, and the lack of courage, etc. Does that square with the Matt Pottinger you know? It does. Matt's a very credible guy. He's a very honest guy. Um, um, I think Matt uh, had not been one of the most pro-Trump people uh, going into 2016, but that doesn't that describes a lot of Republicans um, if they worked for another Republican during the, the 2016 election. So I, he, he wouldn't be hardcore Trump to me, but he certainly supported the president and worked for the administration for several years. But uh, if he saw something that day that encouraged him to or forced him uh, to resign, much as I did, I, I respect that. I th he has no reason to lie. Matt Pottinger was probably better off professionally to just sort of sail off in the sunset and continue to do a lot of his academic work. It, it doesn't benefit him by coming forward at this point and saying, uh, I, I have something to say. It's probably uh, bad for his career to do this because of the, the public attention that it's going to get. So I, I think that if Matt says something tomorrow under oath, uh, I will believe it, or at least I'll put a great deal of credibility on that until somebody else comes forward and says something else while they're under oath. So, uh, no, Matt's a very credible guy, um, and it will be curious to see what he's got to say. Well, this coming Thursday will be this primetime hearing, and I'm, I'm curious as to what you make of Mark Meadows' behavior as it's been described so far. From Cassidy Hutchinson, that he was essentially texting or thumbing through his text messages. Um, you can't tell if she's describing him as more aloof or disengaged or somehow demoralized or just completely, you know, um, disregarding what's happening there at the Capitol and in the White House. But what do you make of the conduct of, that's the chief of staff on January 6th, not being able to go to the president and convince the president of anything or just weigh in in a significant way. Yeah, actually, the thing that caught my attention during Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, when I first started paying attention really closely to these hearings, I'd been watching them, but not really deep diving into them, was when she said something that I, I doubt many other people paid attention to, which is that she said the president was very upset about not being able to go to the Capitol when he was in the limousine because Mark Meadows told him that he was. And what that told me was that the chief of staff had failed in the very first 
part of the job, which is the chief of staff gets paid to tell the president things that he doesn't want to hear. If you cannot tell the, chief, the president of the United States something that he does not want to hear, you have failed in that job. And when Cassidy mentioned that, that's when my ears pricked up and I said, oh my goodness gracious, what, what was going on in that West Wing? And the testimony that, that she gave after that sort of reinforced that, that Mark had lost control, that Mark had, was not uh, comfortable telling the president things he didn't want to hear, that Mark had sort of disengaged. He had friends in the room where this was happening, uh, people who were around Mark Meadows that very day, I believe. What was their impression of Mark Meadows' behavior, his demeanor in that moment? Yeah, I was actually texting back and forth with some friends of mine who were still in the building. Of course, I was gone by then mm -hmm. uh, on January 6th, but they were in the building on January 6th. And I was texting back and forth with them during Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, and I said, was was Mark just completely incompetent or was, was he having a, a nervous breakdown? And the response the person gave me was that it was a little bit of both. Uh, again, that's based on Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. It's based on the tweet from somebody who was there. There's no hard evidence of that yet. We're unlikely to get Mark Meadows' side of the story because it looks like he's not going to testify. And I think that's unfortunate. Um, but if you have a chief of staff who's detached, who's sitting on the sofa all day, tweeting while Rome burns, um, that that is a sign of a broken White House. And while the president is ultimately responsible for his own actions and the president's ultimately responsible for the people that he hires, the chief of staff has a great deal to do when it comes to the responsibility for how a West Wing uh, is run. Now, Mick, you're uniquely positioned and qualified to talk about how the West Wing under Trump would have run as chief of staff and the ideas of how that would go down. Um, given your experience, what would it have been like in those moments to try to talk to Donald Trump, the president of the United States at that time, about what was happening? What would it have taken? Would it have been Herculean efforts or would it have taken a receptive audience? It would have depended, Laura, on, on the relationship up to that point. Um, if there had been a track record of going to the president and saying, Mr. President, uh, we need to talk about this. This is a problem. We got a problem with this. Mr. President, this hurt us a little bit today. Mr. President, we have to fix this. Then that, that, that groundwork gets laid and the president is used to hearing that from somebody. Ideally, it would be the chief of staff. If the if the if the history up to January 6th is, oh, Mr. President, things are great. What would you like to do? To, oh, that's great. That's fabulous. Everything is wonderful. Yeah, that's no, not a problem. Then it's very difficult to change gears uh, in a critical moment and say, no, Mr. President, um, you lost the election. Mr. President, we, we, we can't be doing this rally. Mr. President, this is a problem. Mr. President, we could be in trouble with this. That's very difficult to shift gears like that if the foundation is not set and the relationship is not set. If the president doesn't expect the chief of staff uh, to tell him stuff he doesn't want to hear. Uh, he's unlikely to be listening to it if it comes at a very late moment. Our conversation with Mick Mulvaney continues. He may have had lost interest in being part of the Trump White House, but the question is, would he support putting Trump back in the White House, say in 2024? That's coming up. Welcome back. The Secret Service today turned over thousands of documents to the January 6th committee as part of a subpoena that was issued to the agency last week. But a Secret Service official tells CNN that none of those thousands of documents included those missing text messages sent on the day prior to and on January 6th. Now, the agency insists that the records were lost during a phone migration program, and they're still working on recovering those messages. Now, whether or not they were improperly and purposely deleted is now the key question that several federal agencies, including the National Archives, 
definitely wants answered. So how does Mick Mulvaney see it? Here's the rest of our interview. We're learning a lot about the idea that Secret Service text messages have seemed to have gotten poof in the night. They're not able to retrieve certain aspects of them from January 5th and, of course, January 6th. There was supposed to be some sort of a, a data mig- migration. The onus was on the Secret Service to upload to some sort of internal uh, server. That did not happen. Overwhelmingly, we're learning more and more about. What do you make of the fact that we're not going to be seeing text messages that seem to have gone away from those dates in particular? Yeah, I'm not quick to sort of ascribe guilt or, or at least underhandedness here. Um, the Secret Service is a bureaucracy just like any bureaucracy is, and they they make mistakes like this. This happens all the time, unfortunately, in the federal government. And I do happen to know I had a federal, I had a, a Secret Service detail for about a year and a half. Some of the best and most honest and highest integrity people I know sort of are attracted to, to that that part of that, that area of service. So I will be slow to sort of uh, see something underhanded here until I see something more than what we've got. It certainly looks bad. Uh, there's no question about it. You'd love to have everything out in the open. Of course, the Secret Service has said, number one, that they have been cooperating with the, the January 6th committee from the very beginning. I've not heard anybody say anything to the contrary. I think they've released several hundred thousand emails and other communications from January 5th and January 6th. So while it looks bad, um, I encourage people to sort of um, take a deep breath on this one before we ascribe any sort of um, uh, guilt here. Keep in mind, the, the inspector general who reported this was actually a Trump appointee. Uh, and by the time February rolled around, the folks running DHS, which runs Secret Service, were were, were Biden appointees. So um, this doesn't fall neatly into any sort of category. I don't see a conspiracy yet. I don't see anything underhanded yet. But certainly it bears uh, it bears investigation because you can't do that. You can't not uh, not disclose information. The government has to be in, in entirely transparent every chance it gets. Keeping an open mind in Washington, D.C. That might be Herculean after all, Mick. I haven't heard that before, I have to tell you. But as you mentioned, full circle, this committee you believe is um, anti-Trump. It seems that their focus is to ensure that the American public, through transparency, no longer believe that he could be the viable president of the United States if he were to run for re-election yet again. We don't know if he intends to do that. But if he is, in fact, the RNC nominee, do you intend to vote for him? Um, you know, I, I've answered that question this way, which is that I'm, I'm, I'm one of those Republicans who hope the president, former president uh, Trump doesn't run. Um, in all fairness, we don't need him anymore. He, he, he changed our party. Um, we have, built, have a lot of folks, a new generation of folks, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, go down the list of folks who could give us the same policies, the same energy, the same defense of the middle class um, that Donald Trump gave us without the baggage. I mean, face it, as a Republican, I'm sitting here tonight thinking to myself, well, if the election were today and Joe Biden was the nominee for the Democrats or Kamala Harris or Gavin Newsom, there's probably only one mainstream Republican who could lose, and that's Donald Trump. But knowing what I know, I'd be really hard pressed to support Donald Trump again. Well, obviously, your thought of the Republican Party no longer needing Donald Trump might not be the view of millions of people who did vote for him as part of his base. So if he ultimately decides that I intend to run and none of the other people do, you'll have quite a choice on your hands whether to yeah, vote keep in for mind, him. I, 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 I think we've moved beyond that. I think we've moved beyond Donald Trump clearing the field. I think that is one thing that the January 6th committee has accomplished. Don't know if that's what they want to accomplish. I sort of thought they wanted to try and bring criminal charges or encourage the Department of Justice to bring criminal charges. I don't see that yet. But to the extent they wanted to wound him politically, I think that's happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been some polling data out recently that's for the first time say that a majority of Republican primary voters 
uh, would prefer somebody other than Donald Trump. Um, that's a big change over the course of the last six or eight weeks. Um, eight weeks ago, I doubt very seriously that any 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 top tier Republicans, again, Pence, Pompeo, uh, Tim Scott, DeSantis, were considering running for president. I think now many of them are. I think Nikki Haley even today hinted that she might run uh, in a speech that she gave in Israel. So um, I think that is something that has changed over the course of the last six weeks, eight weeks, and it's changed because of the committee. So again, I think they were out to sort of get him and try and throw him in jail. I don't think that was ever going to happen. I certainly don't think it's going to happen based upon the evidence that we've seen now. But if they wanted to damage him to the point where he might not win or might not run, um, I think that that, uh, that may be an outcome of these hearings. Wow. Well, to paraphrase the whole um, great taste, less filling, it sounds like same policies, less drama would be the way to go in your book. Mick Mulvaney, thank you so much. Thanks, Laura. Critics of these hearings claim that they're a waste of time with nothing new to show. But I have someone here who served on legal teams in both impeachments against Trump, including the one for what happened on January 6th. I'm wondering, what does he see from the committee's work and what will he be watching for Thursday night? That's next. So one question hangs pretty well over the January 6th hearings. Will any of the evidence lead the Justice Department to indict Trump? You heard a statement from Mick Mulvaney just before the break about what his expectations were or were not. I mean, admittedly, it's an unprecedented prospect, an idea that would normally be unheard of. But then again, when it comes to what we've seen over the past, I don't know, six to eight years, perhaps it's been quite unprecedented. I mean, Donald Trump often entered uncharted waters. He was the first U.S. president to be impeached not once, but twice and the first president to, well, incite, as they say, an attack on the U.S. Capitol. Get some perspective now from Barry Burke, the chief counsel for Trump's second impeachment trial that was the result of January 6th. Barry, good to see you here. I'm curious about your perspective in particular because of the fact that some have really been critical of the hearing of the uh, committee in general. They view it as a second bite at the apple, a failed attempt at the impeachment, number two. Now this is the new avenue to do this. I'm curious as to what your take has been about what the committee has been able to produce. Specifically, are there things that you wish you could have known or had for the impeachment involving January 6th? Great. Great to be here, Laura. And I have to tell you, it's very gratifying to me as chief impeachment counsel for the second impeachment to see what the committee has been able to do. You'll feel very proud about the case and the evidence we presented to establish Donald Trump committed high crimes and misdemeanors. We showed how he perpetuated the lie that the election was stolen, summoned the crowd, incited them, and then refused to act and, in fact, encouraged them on. And what the committee hearing has shown is the power of having congressional subpoenas that can be enforced with an independent Department of Justice that was prepared to hold witnesses in contempt like Steve Bannon and others that forced all these other insiders who had firsthand information to come forward and testify. And once they did that, they were going to tell the truth or else they'd be committing a crime. So I am in awe of the great work the committee did. Those witnesses were not prepared to voluntarily come forward at the time of the impeachment, but they were compelled. They came forward and have provided compelling evidence that fully supports everything we did in the impeachment and goes beyond that and raises questions about Donald Trump's criminal intent and whether he could or should be prosecuted for the acts that he did. So I watch it with, again, appreciation 
and gratification of how it supported what we did. Well, do you think that he should and will be held accountable this time, knowing that there is arguably there's more information that's come out from these hearings than it did from the impeachment? Obviously, the impeachment um, trial was shortly thereafter, January 6th. We're now more than a year after, and we have a thousand witnesses who have probably been tested, who've been um, given depositions at some point in time with this committee. Do you think that now, given the breadth of what we've seen, is there enough, not just for the high crimes misdemeanors, that's sort of passed, but the idea of actual trials or actual charges against Donald Trump or anyone else in his direct orbit? Laura, what I will tell you is I have had clients as a criminal defense lawyer who've been prosecuted for a shadow of the evidence against Donald Trump. There's overwhelming evidence that he took steps to interfere with the election. And now there's equal amount of evidence about his criminal intent, that he knew what he was doing was wrong. When he told the senior leadership of the Department of Justice, just say there's fraud, leave the rest to me. So I do believe in the principle that no person is above the law. And if the evidence is there, they should be prosecuted. But most importantly, it's the deterrent value that often determines whether cases are brought. And here, there's an incredible incentive to bring this case for that reason. There are people who are not only saying that they're going to interfere with future elections, they're running for public office with that campaign promise. So the department has an obligation to send the message. If you engage in crimes to interfere with the most important principle underlying our democracy, free and fair elections, you will be prosecuted regardless if you're elected public official, present or former. Well, that would be the the theme, no one being above the law. And you're right, there are campaigns whose entire platform is about this very notion in positions that will actually oversee elections across this country. It's arguable and wondering whether or not Merrick Garland will actually go forward with those in in full scope at this point in time. But I'm wondering about timing in particular. Um, One of the things that sort of hung over the impeachment trial against Donald Trump about January 6th was the idea of timing. In that case, it was about the fact that it was an outgoing president. Should you still have an impeachment for somebody who will no longer be in office momentarily? Now the question is about timing when it comes to DOJ in terms of this rule that is in the Justice Department where they don't want to be seen as interfering in any way with upcoming elections. They have a certain sort of cutoff date before they believe the public will perceive their investigations or announcements thereof in a way that would impact the elections. Listen to what Lisa Monaco, the deputy AG, had to say about the question of whether they would continue to investigate knowing that that sort of sort of Damocles and timing is ahead of them. We're going to continue to do our job, to follow the facts wherever they go, no matter uh, where they lead, no matter to what level. Um, And we're going to continue to do our job to investigate what was fundamentally an attack on our democracy. When you hear that, what do you think? That this is a saying that they're going to continue with any investigation, even if it means someone like Trump who's not on the ballot, or is it something more broad? I think they're going to continue with the investigation and bring the charges when appropriate. But what they won't do is let an election interfere with their decision making. They won't rush it. They shouldn't delay it. But they should be aware they don't want to do something short of bringing charges that could have an effect on the election that's unintended. Really important point, Barry Burke. Thank you so much. So the question now is, where are the Secret Service text messages from on and around January 6th, where, where did they go? The select committee thought they were going to get them today. And what is the service now saying? Well, the questions are growing. And political and legal pros are going to try to help me answer them next. So here's a 
question. What happens if Secret Service's their text messages from January 5th and January 6th are never recovered? Will it hurt the insurrection investigation and will anyone be published and punished for that? Let's discuss now with former Democratic Senator and U.S. Attorney Doug Jones, former federal prosecutor Shan Wu, and former RNC Communications Director Doug Hai. I'm so glad you're all here. First of all, I'm wondering, when you think about these Secret Service text messages, the fact that, I mean, of all the days, kind of the Casablanca thing, of all the days in the entire world, these are the ones that seem to have gone away. What do you make of this? Mick Mulvaney said, I'm not going to read into anything nefarious just yet. I know it's the word yet. But skeptics, are you there? Well, I'm skeptical, but, you know, regardless of what, you know, Mick Mulvaney also said that, you know, Nancy Pelosi removed all the Republicans off the committee, and she didn't. Kevin McCarthy did that. So, I, you know, look, I think you have to have a, a healthy dose of skepticism here. It, 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 it's either something nefarious or pure incompetence in which heads need to roll. Everybody knows that those text messages should have been preserved. It is a document that should have been preserved. They should have prepared for that and planned on that. And I'm assuming that they did, and so we don't know. I think there's a lot of questions. Is it, are we putting too much emphasis, though, on, I mean, obviously the people who type the text, the thumbs are still there, right? We know the people, what did you write? What did you text? What did you actually say to one another? You could ask that question. Is it kind of much ado about this form over substance? I think that's a really important point. I mean, they have to do those well, kinds you, of Shan. interviews. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they really have to. Smoking like a true former prosecutor. <laughs> if you were doing the investigation, you'd be talking those thumbs. <laughs> um, they have to do that because they may never get those messages. I mean, I find it hard to believe in this day and age that something can really be wiped that way, but the Secret Service seems like they're able to do that. So they need to talk to the people. The sort of gibberish that was coming out from the Secret Service today saying that they are not sure that that data has been lost or that data wasn't lost. Like, how do you even know which messages were lost if you're saying you can't find them? Mm. So that's very confusing. <laughs> yeah, and when Mulvaney was talking about the bond that he would have with his Secret Service agents, whether that's on Capitol Hill with security details or those who get Secret Service protection, that's a very real bond. But it doesn't change the fact that this has been a troubled organization, the Secret Service, for several years now. Karen Lenning's book has especially documented a series of blunders and mistakes and ignorals, uh, ignoring of, of problems that they have. So this doesn't immediately pass the smell test. And then you have the other problem, which is Donald Trump's candidacy and Donald Trump's presidencies from day one didn't pass the smell test. And a lot of Republicans were willing to go along as far as January 6th or beyond, or at least when they saw that it was all over. But Trump started in a place of dishonesty, and we come to where the very things that we may need to see just happen to be disappeared. It doesn't pass the smell mm. test. But, but Laura, let's, let's, let's not too, put too much emphasis on this. I mean, these are text messages. They're not court reporters taking down everything that was seen and heard. It, they're talking about security. But the odds are they're also talking about their kids or what, when the hell they're going to get away. Or somebody said something stupid, mm. you know, another agent. Think about how people use text messages today, even when you're on the job. So in every trial, in every investigation, there's always holes. We always see it every time. There's always some gaps. So I don't think we need to put all the emphasis on this, that this is going to make or break your case, because I don't believe it is. There may be some just absolutely dynamite stuff in there, which would bolster a case. But I think the fact that they're not there, I don't think is going to hurt the case. Not to mention, I mean, we've all seen in the past when Congress was, was interviewing and having a hearing for some of the social media giants and they need to basically have a, 
a, a vocabulary <laughs> glossary for it. It's probably going to be a lot of acronyms, LOLs, sure. et cetera, in there, maybe or maybe not. But again, you can always ask the person. The real question for me is, on Thursday, we're going to have in prime time, which you already tell me. You tell me prime time's happening. My expectations are already through the roof. Right which is always a dangerous thing because I think prime time, you're ready to show me something. I'm going to sit back. I'm waiting to be shown something. I wonder because the last hearing we saw was about the idea of I'm going to connect the dots between these extremist groups and Donald Trump and the administration. And in a way, there was the overpromising, the underdelivering on that notion. But will this be something? What do you want to hear? What are you waiting to hear in this last hearing? Is there something you're thinking, God, I, I, if I were doing this, I'd want this. What is that nugget? I don't, I'm not expecting anything. I'm not waiting to see anything. What I'm waiting for them to do is just to complete the investigation, finish it up. And I think the way to finish that up with the way that they have set forth this entire thing, it's been well done. I mean, the way that they have moved from one subject to the, to the next. The last part of this is what was going on inside the White House as this was happening. And I think that that's all that that's going to be. And I think your people are going to be shocked. But I think we've already heard a lot of that. We've seen the tweets. We've seen other things. I'm not sure there'll be a ton of blockbuster, but there there might be something that is a surprise. But it's going to be the completion. It's going to be the final chapter of what the committee has done. And then, of course, the report, right? You're not going to have the right. ultimate being as a you know trial attorney is the idea of not to leave you out, Doug. I kind of you, trial attorney, trial attorney. I'm glad you're here, too. Leave me out of but the legal game. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of this is not a time you're going to ask for a verdict at the end of it, where you're going to know right now what, right. what the people think. But Mick Mulvaney will talk more about this, seem to think that the verdict essentially was to clear the way for other RNC nominees. I'm not sure that's going to be the case, but what do you think? Well, I think I, I would never agree with Mick Mulvaney on anything. <laughs> uh, however, I would say that... Well, there you have it, yeah, okay? The, the closing part of this hearing, at least for now in primetime, it's not going to put the prosecutorial nail in the coffin on Trump. And they are a congressional committee, and it's going to end on that political note, which is to really point out what he was thinking and have people saying that he didn't want to do anything. And I think that does end on a very strong, important fact-finding note, but it's political. It's not going to be a prosecutorial final note. Guess where we're going to come back to, Doug High? He's like, ooh, I think I have something to say (laughs) about this very issue. Stick around, everyone, because coming up, all of the fake Trump electors in one state who were part of a plan to subvert the will of the voters, well, they just got put on notice. And if I were any of them, well, maybe I'd be looking for a lawyer, ASAP. Plus the Steve Bannon contempt trial. He's letting his lawyer do the talking inside the courtroom, but outside, nope, his gums are flapping. He's making up his own Thank witness you. wish list, and you'd be surprised he's actually on it. Right back with that in just a moment. So all 16, yes, 16 of the fake electors in Georgia who were part of the plan to overturn the 2020 election on behalf of Donald Trump are now targets in a criminal investigation tonight. That's according to the Fulton County, Georgia prosecutors looking into Trump's election interference in the state. So does this mean they're closer to deciding on criminal charges? And is the probe drawing any closer to Donald Trump himself? Hmm. Back with me now, Doug Jones, Shan Wu, and Doug High. You know, I start here because you think about the ways in which Georgia, you know this, Doug, 
pretty unique in terms of all of the sort of states that have had um, discussions around the lies around the election. Georgia didn't seem to be buying it when it came to, obviously, Purdue versus Kemp. Kemp did yep. not have that angle. Is this an example of there being the Trump fatigue that Mick Mulvaney was talking about, the idea of, look, he sort of cleared the way for others because they're not buying it anymore. They don't want to deal with it. Yeah, you know, what we see when Donald Trump goes all in for a candidate is it guarantees him about a third of the vote. And then the rest of it is up to those candidates. And what you had was a, a popular governor who took on Trump on one thing, but otherwise, you know, was very firmly in line with, by and large, Trump policies against somebody who had not only lost their Senate race, so in Donald Trump's parlance, a loser, but somebody who ran a terrible campaign and had lost two years earlier um, with some help from Trump. Republicans are trying to inch away from Donald Trump. They know they can't run from him. But what you hear on Capitol Hill privately, sometimes in a very coded language sentence or two by Mitch McConnell, something that suggests Republicans moving forward to 2024 can do other things. And that's where you're seeing more and more Ron DeSantis's, Tim Scott's got a book coming out. You know, a lot of those people that Mick Mulvaney talked about mm. who all want to run. And politicians are often self-interested, big shock. Um, getting Trump no out of the way to would you, help. Former senator, we don't mean you. Yeah, we don't. But, but, but <laughs> often, everyone but you. None of those. None of those people are condemning Trump's actions, though. They're mm-hmm. still wrapping themselves with Trump. Every candidate out there in Alabama and everywhere else, they're wrapping themselves in, in Trump and saying uh, that you know the election was stolen, and they're not condemning what they've heard out. It's just nothing but crickets coming from Capitol Hill on the actions that were took and the, yep. the threat to democracy that we saw. And that, I think, is a real tragedy. I mean, yep. a real tragedy. What you hear tragedy. privately and what you hear publicly is, unless they're Liz Cheney um, or Adam Kinzinger, often mirror images of, of what reality is. I always hear that. And I can tell you, as somebody from the electorate and thinking about the idea of the public versus the, the private conversations, I associate those who sort of shirk away publicly as the shrinking ballots who wouldn't be asking for the chance to lead. If you want to be a member of Congress, I always think to myself, well, maybe you should be the person who, you know, consequences be damned. I know that's naive, perhaps, in the way of Washington, D.C., you're shaking your head. But the idea of, you know, why do you think still, all this time in, there is the reluctance to say publicly about just something as basic as what Mick Mulvaney even had to say, the idea of, look, there's a fatigue. Because of what Doug just said, that there's 30 percent of the people out there that, regardless of what you say, is going to be a Trump voter and they're going to be there for him and they're going to defend him at all costs. And every one of those politicians do not want to alienate that 30 percent of the vote. And that's why you got all of that list that Mick talked about. Not a single one of them has condemned the actions of, the, of, of Donald Trump and what happened before, during and after. They have talked about and said it's time to move on. But hell, everybody says that. It's time to move on. When you know you've got a problem, you say, we don't need to look at the past. We need to look forward. Folks need to step up and they need to put this country first and start talking about democracy and wrapping themselves in that flag instead of the Donald Trump flag of silence. Well, you know who wasn't silent today was Steve Bannon on the courthouse steps, right? (laughs) I mean, he he was looking for a microphone. He found one. There was this moment when he tried to call out Betty Thompson and others to say, come on down. You're the next contestant on the, I don't know, the partisan is right. Here it is. Benny Thompson sent a staffer over here. Where is Benny Thompson? We subpoenaed Thompson and they're hiding behind uh, these phony privileges. He's too gutless to come over here himself. He's made it a crime, made it a crime. Not a civil charge of wanting my testimony, but a crime. 
and he didn't have the courage or guts to show up here and he sent a staffer. I challenge Benny Thompson today to have the courage to come to this courthouse. If he's going to charge somebody with a crime, he's going to be man enough to show up here. Well, we also learned that Benny Thompson, I think, has COVID right now. Um, but there's also the idea of that statement. Shan, uh, Benny Thompson's not prosecuting anyone. He's in a different branch of the government entirely. Right? Right. And I think... Uh that a deal was cut there between Bannon and his lawyer, which was his lawyer said, look, you really got to keep a lid on it in the courtroom. Let me do the talking, but I'll let you chat some on the courtroom steps. You know the lawyer, right? <laughs> you know the lawyer. Used yeah. to work with him at right. our same office. And, right. and But so isn't it surprising you that he's that vocal outside? I mean, certainly the judge is going to be, a judge is a uh, Trump appointee. The judge yeah. is going to know that they're talking on the courthouse steps at some right. point, right? right? That's not going to offend the judge or I, get him in trouble? Oh, I think it will. I'm a little bit surprised the judge didn't basically tell them don't talk outside of the courtroom. I think that is problematic for him. Um, I think Bannon's probably a very difficult client to control, though. <laughs> that was the understatement of the year. I want to tell you about what might be said. What do you think? I, I, look, I, I think it's a mistake always to let a client speak to the media, especially like that. And what was so bizarre to me, listening to Steve Bannon, is that he challenged and he said that Benny Thompson didn't have the guts to show up at court. Steve Bannon didn't have the guts enough to show up in front of Congress pursuant to a lawful subpoena. He just basically thumbed his nose. He didn't have the guts enough. He didn't have the courage. He can hide behind a microphone for his podcast in Breitbart, but he didn't have the guts enough to stand in front of a committee and be questioned about what he did. As they say, details, details <laughs> about the facts of life. And since I did reference um, Price is Right, I should remind the population to have your pet spayed or neutered, as you say, at the end of every single show. Yeah, I used to watch with you, Grandma. Thank you so much. Doug Jones, Shan Wu, Doug High. thank you, everyone. Thanks for watching, everyone. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.